Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Today, we're talking to Vasu Sojitra about his passion for the outdoors and increasing representation for people with disabilities and communities of color in these spaces. Vasu was only nine months old when he was diagnosed with septicemia, resulting in the amputation of one of his legs. Since then, Vasu has not looked back. With the help of his parents, brother, and friends, Vasu has built up the confidence needed to face new challenges with grace, courage, strength, humor, and unwavering determination. His determination is reflected in the reputation he's built for himself as a professional adaptive athlete. Vasu has climbed and skied peaks in Montana's Beartooth and Bridger Mountain Ranges. In 2004, he became the first amputee to summit the Grand Teton in Wyoming without a prosthetic limb. He's involved in a number of extreme sports like alpine skiing and hiking and mountain sports ranging from trail running to rock climbing to pack rafting. Name it, he's done it, no matter how scary it is for me. Vasu considers himself a disruptor and quite rightfully so. He's using his platform to increase accessibility to the outdoors for people with disabilities as a way to help them build confidence, self-awareness and self-esteem. He's also involved in efforts to increase representation of people of color in the outdoors. And we talked extensively about his perspective on how to approach diversity, equity, inclusion and justice work and the change he's trying to achieve in the spaces he works in. I love that Vasu is so humble about everything that he's achieved so far and is extremely ambitious to climb the next highest mountain. I must admit I was a little bit intimidated at first because of all that he's achieved and how he's so effective at bringing awareness around diversity, equity, inclusion and justice issues. But again, one of the first things that really comes through with Vasu is his humility and his authenticity and recognizing that even in the work that he does, he is still a work in progress. He's still learning this stuff as he's going along, which was really comforting for me especially because I'm also promoting values of diversity, equity and inclusion and justice in my work. And so we are human beings and we're bound to make mistakes at some point. And so it's this conversation with Vasu that really reminded me of the honesty and authenticity in which we need to be doing this work. So there you have it. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Vasu because we covered a lot as usual, but it was such good stuff, especially the conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work that Vasu is involved in. So I hope you like it. Typically, we start with this one question, which is, how did you develop your passion for the outdoors? Yeah, thanks for having me. I was able to connect with outdoor spaces at a very young age. So I grew up primarily in India when I was younger, so from two to seven. And in Indian culture, most people are just spending a lot of their time outside and hanging out with people and connecting in that kind of manner. So that was really a good way to spend time outside with some of our neighbor kids and just play cricket or soccer or football, we call it. I also spent a lot of time inside playing with Legos and just tinkering and stuff like that. So that was super fun. But 
yeah, a lot of time outside. And then once we moved to the States, we were primarily living in apartment complexes. And in apartment complexes, there's always kids running around and doing something active. So we were always engaged in that. Me and my brother, as in we, who is two years older, his name is Amir. We always engaged with a lot of the neighbor kids as well and like skateboarding or playing some strange team sport that we might have made up or playing in the snow or anything like that, which was always super fun. And then uh, as time progressed, we got more into organized sports. So my brother really got into soccer and I was more so just watching from the sidelines. Unfortunately, a lot of those spaces are still very much ableist, which means discrimination against people with disabilities and weren't really allowing folks with crutches or disabilities to take part, which was a bummer. But I was just kind of on the sidelines watching and kicking the soccer ball around with other people. Yeah, that was fairly fun. And then we just got into skiing through a neighbor of ours who wanted to go skiing at a younger age, around the age of 10, and that kind of took off from there. Mm -hmm. And so now you're an, an adaptive athlete and you're involved in a lot of sports that terrify me, such as skiing down very steep mountains. Skating also scares me yeah. <laughs> with wheels on it right. <laughs> <laughs> and requires me to balance. I'm terrified of it. And some not so scary like backcountry skiing and hiking and rock climbing. Well, rock climbing might be scary because of the heights for me at yeah. least. So how did you get into those type of sports and how do you kind of like build your repertoire in them? Yeah. I'm drifting away from saying that it was all because of my persistence, because there was so much support that helped me get to where I am at. My parents were always driving us, supporting us financially, even though we weren't the most wealthy. We were fairly, I'd say like middle class, potentially lower middle class in the US. And yeah, they were just prioritizing our enjoyment and just giving us as much opportunities as possible while living in the States because they knew that if we were in, in India, we wouldn't have these same opportunities. So that was incredibly influential in mine and my brother's ambitions when it came to outdoor recreation. And like as we started watching media and like things like the X Games or TV shows like Rocket Power, if you've heard of either of those, we really got more into that extreme sports aspect of skateboarding and snowboarding and skiing. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of support there from primarily our parents who were very helpful. We had to do a little bit of convincing, of course, thinking, you know, they were like, why would Indians be skiing? Like, that's not something we do. <laughs> but we, we were pretty persistent and adamant. And they occasionally thought it was like a waste of money, of course, but we convinced them that it was not. And hopefully that convincing actually brought some light to that, seeing, seeing that i am become a professional skier. So that was incredibly huge. As well as the schools that I went to in Connecticut, in Glastonbury, offered a lot of subsidized ski trips up to Vermont in the US. And they were incredibly cheap for what it was. It would be like $250, $300 for a weekend trip with lift tickets, lodging, food, transportation, all included in that price. Wow. So, I mean, fairly inexpensive for skiing. Skiing is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Like pretty much $100 a lift ticket now. It's kind of wild. Wow. So those are really great opportunities to take part in. And from that, started creating some friendships around it. And one of my close friends, Al, had a house very close to a ski hill up in Vermont. And we would go up there all the time and we would get a season pass or 
get some like more inexpensive teenage tickets or something along the lines of that. It was a good opportunity to be able to cut cost in many of those ways because that is one of the biggest barriers for entry when it comes to skiing. So those are some good support systems as well as like I'm incredibly stubborn human being if you get to know me a little bit more so and very persistent <laughs> when it comes to a lot of these ambitious goals of mine. Yeah. So I tend to really dig my heels in and at least try to achieve them or feel like I've succeeded in some manner. I don't need full closure over it, but at least some sort of sense of success or contentment. So that was also a huge factor in that. Yeah. So you mentioned something about how skiing, for example, is an expensive sport and you're also an amputee, so you need adaptive equipment. So how do you kind of overcome that barrier? Because outdoor equipment is expensive to begin with, and I'm assuming adaptive equipment is even more expensive. And if so, how can we have the outdoor equipment to be more affordable and accessible, especially for those with disabilities? Yeah. So as you were saying, especially ski equipment is incredibly expensive. and Of course, at first we were just renting from the rental shop and I was just using my forearm crutches that I use on a daily basis to go skiing, which wasn't really as effective. But as I started looking into it, yeah, they are fairly expensive. My ski outriggers that I use now are around $1,000. The ski outriggers I was using before were around $400 or $500 because those are aluminum. The ones I use now are titanium, so harder to break now, hopefully. So yeah, that is a huge barrier. The nice thing about adaptive equipment is there's dozens of philanthropic grant opportunities and organizations out there that offer financial support for folks that have a disability. Organizations like the Challenge Athlete Foundation or the Kelly Brush Foundation, all these foundations are giving opportunities for folks with any kind of disability to be able to apply for grants through their programs and then be able to acquire some money to buy this gear. So that's pretty amazing in itself to be able to cut those costs down and those barriers down because yeah, some of this equipment is like two to three times more expensive than mainstream ski gear or mainstream mountain biking gear or whatever it may be. So a lot of that is slowly being, those barriers are being cut for sure, which is awesome to see. Yeah. Now, when you first mentioned the different philanthropic ventures that are actually helping to subsidize the cost, I thought I wouldn't have expected it, but it's also a pleasant surprise that there's initiative to actually address these type of barriers and overcome them or help overcome them. Yeah. Again, I tell people like having the disability, like I can control all the barriers that I put on myself, like, oh, I'm not good enough. Like, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can change that, reframe it and make sure that I can. But a lot of the barriers that others or society puts on us are the ones that are out of our control. And like organizations like Challenge Athlete Foundation or any of these adaptive sports orgs that are breaking down those barriers to make sure that these societal barriers aren't an issue is so important in building some self-love and building more self-resiliency within a lot of these spaces because a lot time and time again, folks with disabilities are always shut down, told no, that they can't do this, they can't enter this space because it's not accessible or you can't watch this movie because it doesn't have captions, all these little things that happen that are completely out of our control. 
which is a bummer, but it's amazing to see, you know, these organizations and grant systems that are able to break down those barriers. Mm -hmm. So do you have an opportunity to work with some of these equipment designers? I don't yet. And I don't really have the ambition to, Mm. given the stuff I do is incredibly niche. Like it's incredibly specific to what I'm doing with scouting or alpinism or trail running, anything like this is like, there's not many people that are doing this stuff, which I would love to have see like a teenage kid just like completely crushing everything I've been doing, but it's just not as prevalent. So I don't really see a need to pursue that at the moment. But if I do, like I might jump into it. I don't know. Life is life and it kind of is fairly fluid. So who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just a random thought I had. What is alpinism? I'll step back and notch. Mountaineering is getting to the summit of a mountain the easiest way. It's not easy in any way. Like It's still very, very difficult, but it's the path of least resistance to get to the top mm-hmm. is what mountaineering is. And it's still very difficult. These are like very tall summits, 13, 15, 20,000 feet summits, 8,000 meter peaks in the Himalayas. All these things are all mountaineering based. Then alpinism is the same summit, but doing it through a more technical route. So more difficult. So like it might involve steeper terrain or it might involve a bit of mixed climbing, which is a combination of rock climbing and ice climbing. And there might be some full on ice climbing and full on rock climbing. And like it all starts intertwining a little bit more and it's way more technical. You have to bring more gear, bring more safety equipment. Yeah. So that's kind of the difference. It's just more difficult. It's pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw some of those difficult moments in your videos where I was kind of getting goosebumps yeah. and scared. <laughs> A lot of that stuff is mountaineering. Like we were taking the least path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. What we did this past weekend of climbing Tacoma, also known as Mount Rainier, was alpinism, where we chose a harder route to try to summit. There was a mellower route that we could have easily done, but we didn't want to. We wanted to do something more difficult. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the difference. It's just, I personally think it's more fun because it's like, just for me, like, hopefully people don't judge this horribly. For me, mountaineering is kind of just like head down, trudging up a mountain. Whereas like alpinism is like, you have to like be very hyper vigilant and like try to make sure you're route finding and like making sure you're miss a step and all these things that might come into play which is not to say that mountaineering doesn't have those aspects, but alpinism has a lot more of that. A lot of no-fall zones. If you fall, you die kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> Or hurt, get hurt really, really bad. Oh my. Yeah. Okay. Kind of slightly addicting, which I don't tell my mother that often. <laughs> <laughs> She'd probably be as terrified as I am, but I was going to say that sounds very thrilling. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's very yeah. thrilling. People definitely, I don't like to use, throw this word around that often, but people definitely think it's crazy and out of like, I'm losing my mind because of it or something, you know, it's just like, mm-hmm. why would you do that? Like, why not just be on stable ground and live your life? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm very much a fan of getting out of my comfort zone, whether it be physically or emotionally. Yeah. So... Thank you for explaining that. I've never heard of the word alpinism. So I appreciate yeah. <laughs> explaining the differences 
I mean, it just sounds, the latter's alpinism sounds like it's more engaging. So you often say that you want to hike the highest mountain and you keep outdoing yourself. So I think you alluded to this a little bit previously. What's the driving force behind that? I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. One of my friends asked me on our trip to Tacoma, like trekking up Tacoma, was why do you want to summit Tacoma? My answer was I want to find my physical limit because I haven't yet. I've done a few different trail runs, 20, 30 mile runs, and my body is definitely breaking down. And I was like, I'm exhausted, but I always know that I can go a little bit farther. I know a lot of it is based around mental strength. And a lot of it is actually like, if I have enough water and food, I'm ready to rock and roll for days. <laughs> so like, I still haven't, even with our trek up Tacoma, I didn't find my limit which I'm like, ah, shit. Okay. So <laughs> let's try to do something else that'll help find my physical limit. Yeah. I don't know. It's more just to like prove to myself that I can do a lot of these things. I don't really care about proving to other people that I'm able to do this stuff. I also want people to know that these spaces aren't just made for people without disabilities, that these spaces are for everyone, whatever ability that they have. And I also want folks with disabilities to know that they are welcomed in any space that their heart desires. There's a lot of sense of imposter syndrome. There's a lot of sense of not belonging or not being good enough when it comes to having a disability or have being a part of a marginalized group and trying to break that stigma down because a lot of these outdoor spaces are incredibly white, incredibly able, incredibly straight, cis, hetero. So I'm trying to make sure that I'm reframing it so we are all welcome in any of these spaces because we're all human. We're all people first. These spaces are made for everyone. Doesn't matter who. It's the people that are in them that are putting these barriers onto more of these marginalized identities. So that's kind of my motivator when it comes down to it. That's actually a good segue into our next section, which is your vocal advocate for disability justice. And on your website, you spell out disability in two separate words. What are you trying to bring to our attention when you separate this from ability? Yeah, there's this stigma around disability that it's negative. It's not negative. It's part of human nature. No matter how hard we'll try to get rid of disability through eugenics, through a lot of ableist concepts of segregation, kind of like what the Nazis were doing, kind of stuff that was happening in California in the early 1900s or mid to early 1900s. Like a lot of that stuff, they were trying to get rid of people with disabilities, institutionalize people with disabilities. And the idea is like, yeah, I have a disability, but it's again, part of human nature. It's not going to go away ever. It's part of human biodiversity. And if we don't learn to live with it, and respect it and elevate it and celebrate it, then we are incredibly exclusive humans that are trying to be more homogenous and not welcoming everyone with love and compassion. So that's kind of my take on that. Yeah. And in that same vein, I completely agree with you where disabilities kind of stigmatized as this inconvenience in someone's life. 
So I really want us to be able to highlight that it's just another way of life. So what has been the most rewarding aspect of your disability? Rewarding? I have a very, very privileged disability where I can navigate pretty much any able body space however I like. I just need a little bit of support of pretty much like carrying my dinner plate or food plate or a drink or whatever, very little things. But I personally believe, again, I've broken down the barriers that I've put on myself and it's taken a very long time. I'd say 20, 25 years to do that. And that's what I respect the most. I'm very proud to have a disability. I'm very proud to be able to navigate between the able-bodied world and the disabled community and be able to connect with both populations and be able to connect with the values of a lot of those, both of those populations. And yeah, it's kind of a, it's a cool way for me to be able to build bridges between the two communities because a lot of my friends don't have disabilities, at least don't have visible disabilities, but they've learned so much through the work that I'm doing and just the language that I use or try to elevate through my platform. And it's a great way for a lot of folks that don't have disabilities to really learn about a completely different population that they might not have had the opportunities to experience. So yeah, the one thing I do really enjoy about having a disability is to be able to build empathy for different populations. Yeah. And that's so important. And that same goes with my skin as well. Being Indian American, I'm in this like flux between being Indian and American. And given my proximity to whiteness and spaces like Bozeman, which is 90% white, I can try to communicate a lot of my Indian values that I learned from my parents and my culture to my friends to be able to build that empathy around different cultures in different spaces. It's kind of like same kind of thing with disability and being a person of color. And that reframing took also a decently long time to figure out because at times I was always feeling like, oh, I'm not Indian enough. Oh, I'm not American enough. Or my parents would always be like, oh, you're too American or you're like not Indian <laughs> enough. I'm like, yeah, I know, whatever. I'm Indian American. I'm not Indian or American. I'm figuring out my own definition of what Indian American means. Yeah. That reframing has helped me really understand who I am and how I want to navigate through these spaces. Yeah. I can totally relate to you're not Indian enough or you're American because growing up in Kenya mm -hmm. and then moving to the U.S., I definitely did have identity crisis many times along my life journey and kind of the stereotypes that people may have of what it means to be Indian, Kenyan, but living in the U.S. and also having experience of living in India. I've had people in India being surprised when I understand what they're saying or I can speak back to them in Hindi. Mm -hmm. I just feel like, at least for me, I'm never like fully accepted wherever I've been. Mm -hmm. In Kenya, I'm not really Kenyan enough because right. of my skin color. In the U.S., I'm, again, not American enough because I didn't grow up here. And in India, I didn't grow up in India. So right. I guess I'm just settling into the ambiguity of my identity, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's where I'm talking about like these outside forces that are putting barriers on us. And I just don't care about those anymore. It's like, why, why would I listen to them? They're just gaslighting me. They're trying to control my life in a way that's incredibly harmful into like making me very confused about who I am as a person. What I'm going to focus on is the values that I care about between all of these spaces and 
utilize that to build, again, that compassion and love when it comes to understanding people as a whole. Yeah. And it's so difficult. And people have very, very strong values, which causes a lot of harm, and especially between religions and ethnicities and race and all this stuff that's constantly happening around the world. But if we're not constantly coming from a space of love and compassion, then harm is going to be perpetuated and people are still going to get hurt, injured, killed. That's how I see it. Yeah. People get uncomfortable when they can't figure out which box you fit into. Yeah. People are very shallow when it comes down to that. <laughs> Wait, what are you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm my own autonomous human being. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone or work with me. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. <laughs> I completely agree. But like you said, it does take time to kind of come into that identity, accept it, and feel comfortable with it and confident enough because you're always going to get people who are questioning your ideals or just your very existence. Yeah. And a lot of that comes with stereotypes and biases, but just because a lot of what I do isn't amplified, what folks with disabilities do isn't amplified in mainstream media. We're not in leadership positions. Our narratives aren't being shared. Our needs aren't being met because of the lack of leadership not lack, but designed lack of leadership, I guess. So these biases aren't being broken down because all these leadership positions are incredibly homogenous and a lot of them are pretty much sticking to the status quo, complacency to continue these oppressive, harmful systems over and over and over again, which is causing a lot of this harm, this causing a lot of this strife, not building empathy and compassion for all different humans. So... That's how I see it. And once we start realizing like, oh, to build empathy, we have to understand the little nuances that come with these identities, that having a disability doesn't mean I have the same narrative as the next person that has a disability. We all have different different lived experiences. So it's, yeah, breaking down these biases is going to take a lot of time and energy. Yeah, yeah. And I really want to talk to you about some of the advocacy that you do around the intersection of social and and environmental justice and disability justice. Something that you mentioned earlier is that we need to learn how to be empathetic for each other, and especially people with disabilities, to give them the spaces that they need to amplify their voices and to be represented. What do you think, or rather, how can we get able-bodied people to see In this case, we're talking about the outdoors as something that is normal and to advocate for it. How to get folks without disabilities to advocate for people with disabilities? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And to see it as it's normal because that's one of the things you're advocating for, right? Like, Right. So, I mean, there's multiple ways. A lot of it is based around distributing power and privilege and control when it comes to a lot Mm -hmm. of these spaces. And that's incredibly vague. So I'll break it down a little bit of, as I was saying before, is Having more representation top down and bottom up, whether that be behind the scenes with leadership, admin, board level, CEOs, CFOs, whatever it may be, having that representation in those levels, as well as within the main, like mid management employee level, as well as who the constituents are and the athletes on the team, ambassadors on the team, like that has to all be represented equitably based around the identities that need to be elevated to build empathy. 
So a lot more folks with disabilities need to be on athlete teams. A lot more people of color need to be on teams or leadership positions or whatever it may be. So the needs of these communities, not saying all of these folks know the needs of all their communities, but the needs can be met to a certain extent and it can move forward into breaking down these biases and building empathy for each other. I mean, that's definitely a difficult thing to do because relinquishing power or distributing power gets rid of a lot of safety nets for a lot of folks, financially, socially, emotionally, whatever, maybe physically. So I think it's a lot of fear-based. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen if I don't have this job kind of thing. So yeah, but the history in the US has told us time and time again, like Black, Indigenous folks of color have been continually marginalized and there has to be some sort of reciprocity. There has to be some reparations being made to be able to provide a more inclusive environment that promotes cultural cohesion. Yeah, I'd love to have an extended conversation about reparations. Yeah, the BLM movement has been creating documents around what reparations actually look like. It's not just monetary, it's also cultural, it's also environmental. It's it's a lot of different things that have been impacted in a lot of these Black and Indigenous communities. So in Indigenous communities, it's a lot of Indigenous sovereignty, food sovereignty, land back management. Yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's cool to see in politics specifically, seeing these past couple of years, the most women of color, folks of color running for office primarily like black and indigenous women of color really coming up and I'm like, this is amazing. Like this is what's going to cause change is that policy. There's been a lot of racist policies that have been implemented in the U S over the past five, four, 500 years. So to undo that or get rid of that and dismantle it, we're going to have to create some really equitable anti-racist policies. And I think that's going to be based around having a lot more diverse leadership in office with quote-unquote radical and extreme ideas, but they're not really radical and extreme. All these racist ideas are actually also very much radical and extreme, which are dehumanizing a lot of these marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. I really struggle with this whole thing of giving up power and the fear that's associated with it. If you were to have an opportunity to speak with the board of REI or one of your sponsors about diversifying their board, how would you approach them about doing that? Well, I would have to first understand where they are at on their educational level when it comes to racist structures within the U.S. So if many of them don't understand why the outdoors is so racist, then I would have to try to break that down first and foremost, especially based around generational trauma, mentorship, access, barriers, all these things that come up when it comes to being able to connect to the outdoor spaces. So that's where I would probably most likely start and then move towards how we can utilize our actual true history and create a reconcile or a process of accountability or reconciliation to be able to cause or create more inclusive spaces, whether that be different hiring practices or changing a lot of their marketing language or including different black and brown faces in their marketing as well as leadership or all these little things or incorporating a lot of different cultures and art into their clothing and design but getting involved in different communities to be able to provide financial support or gear support or whatever it may be to be able to provide success in those communities 
all these things that add up and they all have to happen hand in hand all at the same time. It's just one or the other. It's kind of just tokenizing. So it has to all happen all at the same time. I think that'll show true allyship and true inclusion and a path towards more, again, like cultural cohesion where two different cultures are meshing together towards a common goal. Yeah, that's actually a really good strategy plan. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, I'm coming from a place of like, okay, I'm not right. You're not wrong. It's more just like, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand why these spaces are racist or ableist. And I want to share those resources with you because I've had those opportunities to learn about our true history. And I would love to share that with you to help you understand where this exclusion, these racist ideas and policies are coming from and how we can change that. So it's not you're right, I'm wrong, or I'm right, you're wrong. It's more look like there's a lot of misinterpretation, there's a lot of miseducation happening. Let's sit down, work together to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to providing change. Let's focus on what resources we have available to us to be able to utilize them based on our historical traumas, how to provide a more caring culture instead of such an exclusive culture. Yeah. And so when you're talking about the history of racism in the outdoors, how do you then embed the principles of disability justice into that conversation? It's all intertwined. That's Mm -hmm. a wonderful part about intersectionality is the way I always say is when we celebrate, celebrate the most marginalized, the most oppressed people in our communities, that's when our community is incredibly resilient. We're seeing it time and time again. We're seeing it right now during COVID. Like we are not a resilient community at all. This is pretty much another process of eugenics. It's killing a lot of sick, old, disabled people. And that's not okay. Like, but when we are able to nurture and care for those disabled, those ill, those sick, the elders, that's when we know that our communities are strong. That's when we know we can bounce back from anything and be able to take care of everyone in the community. When we provide access to resources to end, like those specifically marginalized and targeted communities, that's when we know we can provide access to these same resources to everyone. And that doesn't mean like free access. It's not socialism. It's like people still have to work towards that opportunity and access to the best of their abilities. That's how I view it. And that comes with a lot of disability justice is providing access to resources. That's kind of the number one thing. And of course, that's incredibly vague. But when we do provide access to you know, healthcare, when we provide access to education, to food, to water, to public safety, whatever it may be, that's when of these communities are uplifted. That's when their needs are being met. That's when they're cared for, nurtured. And once a lot of those more marginalized communities' needs are being met, there's a lot of overlapping needs in a lot of other communities that are being met as well and basing it off of that compassion and love. Yeah. So it's been 50 years, correct? Since ADA was implemented? No, 30. It was 30. 1990, okay. 90, 1990. Why did I think it was the 60s? Never mind. There's, um, there's like the... Rehabilitation Act, there's a lot of anti-ableist acts that were happening before the ADA. Mm -hmm. 
Not as monumental as the ADA, I'd say, because the ADA focused on private spaces, which is awesome. Right. There's no like accountability process, unfortunately. There's a lot of folks with disabilities that do take a lot of businesses and organizations and all these places to court because they're designing very inaccessible spaces, even in modern times, which is messed up to say, but it was still a pretty monumental act that got passed. Yeah. I watched Crip Camp on Netflix and they kind of provide a, I guess, a sequence of events or a, a timeline of how ADA came about. I was just curious to know, and if you don't know the answer, that's fine. But what do you think is the next iteration of ADA? Ooh, that's a great question. I want there to be some sort of accountability process that businesses are being, no matter how old that these businesses are, they are actively becoming accessible to everyone. Not just businesses, but organizations, healthcare, all these places, education. There's no like us versus them. There's no like, here are all the special ed kids and here's the mainstream classrooms. No, there's like a more inclusive environment in schools where kids with disabilities and kids without disabilities are working together towards a common goal and like working with each other to learn about all these concepts. Same with businesses. Like, it's not like, oh, this is where the disabled people sit and this is where the non disabled people sit. Like, no, it's all intertwined and it's inclusive and it's not just a segregated community. Right now, it very much feels like a modern day apartheid, whether it be with disability, race, ethnicity, anything. We have a really, really hard time including different cultures and different communities into our spaces. So that's where I want to see it is instead of like, yes, this space is accessible, but this space is not. I want universal design where like the whole space is accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas even like within the disability community, like the word inclusive, if we break it down a little bit is like, okay, I'm including you into my practice instead of like, we're including each other into a newly developed practice or idea. So I'm shifting towards more of that universal design. And I really would love that because the concept of universal design is that everyone's needs are being met by an inclusive, accessible design. Mm -hmm. Why is it that businesses and I guess private spaces are not implementing universal designs? Because it's expensive. Okay. And there's no one holding them accountable. Even though it's, isn't it the law though? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But time and time again, disability is the last thing people look at. Yeah. When it comes to designing any space, any event, even like social justice has a huge ableist problem. It's usually the last thing that gets looked at is disability. If you look at any list of marginalized identities, it's like black, indigenous, people of color, queer, trans, and disabled. So it's like, the last thing is always the and disabled. And I think that's bullshit because when we focus on access-centered movements, when we put access at the forefront, that means that everyone will have access to those resources, not just people with disabilities. That's where we have to start reframing it. It's like, no, this is not a selfish, like, this is not only for people with disabilities. Yes, when we provide access to people with disabilities, it is a universal design it provides access to everyone. So when we start utilizing that idea into any space, that's when I think 
people are going to start really realizing that universal design is incredibly important in building empathy. You really bring up a good point in terms of saying that disability is a thing to come last. Why is it, you know, that queer, trans, the LGBTQ plus community, they've been able to kind of garner the publicity or like the attention of communities so that they can kind of get that visibility. But I've also been seeing that disability justice advocates or activists, sorry, are also active. So it's not a matter of like who's getting more like marketing time or publicity. Like it's a mindset thing. Yeah, to a certain extent. But like if we look at the history of disability all around the world and in the US, there's been a ton of segregation. A lot of folks with disabilities were institutionalized, completely separated from society. They were killed. There was a lot of eugenics happening. So like people with disabilities were never even like thought of to be invited to the party. Whereas like a lot of BIPOC and queer trans folks were out there visible. I mean, they were segregated, yes, but they weren't institutionalized in the same sense. So they weren't completely, completely shunned out of society. So they were able to still vocalize their needs and wants through rallies and marches back in the day through the civil rights movement and stuff like that. So that's where that visibility came from. And people just disregarded disability. And also the fact that like people with disabilities a lot aren't able to access these more activist-based spaces because they're incredibly inaccessible. So it seemed like we weren't showing up because we didn't feel like it or whatever, but we weren't showing up because of our disability. Like there was a lot of barriers happening between getting from our houses to the rally or getting to like all these things, traveling to places like that. So there wasn't a physical sense of awareness happening. So we just got pushed aside. Yeah. And it was just, I guess, easier to get pushed aside because our societal or our societal constructs do that. Like you were saying, mm-hmm. it just the way our cities are designed or our buildings are designed the way our community is designed is exclusionary, like you said. Yeah. I just tell anyone to just like, if you have access to a wheelchair, just use a wheelchair for a day around your town and see how it goes for you. Dead serious. And you'll just be like, oh my God, I can't get into my favorite coffee shop. Or, oh man, I wanted to go hang out with my friends. I can't get into their house. Mm. Uh, Someone helping me. Yeah. Oh, I can't get into my car. Like, all these things. And then you add like places like Bozeman, which get a ton of snow and ice. And that's another huge barrier. Like, oh, this person didn't shovel their sidewalk and I can't roll my wheelchair across it. All these little things that start happening. And you're like, what the heck? So that's caused a lot of issues. The nice thing now, and it's based around technology and the boom of technology is that a lot of disability advocates, and you might have noticed, is are moving towards online-based activism. And Crip Camp is one of them for sure. And yeah, there's a handful of others based around the Bay Area as well that are just kicking pure ass, which is awesome. And yeah, a lot of disability advocates are able to organize through their cell phones, through social media, through Facebook, through Zoom, through all these things that people picked up on during COVID. And a lot of these activists are like, yo, we've been doing this for a decade, yeah. over a decade. Like, Now you're going to implement like work from home. Now you're going to implement conference calls from home. Like, what is this BS? Like, we've been trying to ask for this 
forever. And now because someone without a disability is asking to work from home because of COVID, you say yes, it's kind of BS. But the fact is like more and more disability advocates are more visible is because of technology. We can do it from our bed. We can do it while we're feeling a mental health episode happening. We can do it when our chronic illnesses are spiking, anything like that. So right from our bed, from our our couch, from our kitchen. So we don't have to leave our house to be activists anymore. That's amazing. That's what I've been doing this entire COVID season is like being an activist primarily through my cell phone. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And this included too, like this interview and podcast, like, I'm doing it from a house. Like (laughs) a lot of people are moving to live interviews on Instagram. Like this is the access that I'm talking about early on is like, it's very easy to be able to just click Instagram, click on the person that's going live and listen to these narratives, you know? Yeah. So super important. And it's happening. Yeah. Mostly now because of COVID, but it is happening. Yeah. I can totally relate to what you were saying earlier when when most of us were now having to work remotely, there were conversations going around on social media about like, we were told that we couldn't work from home before and now we can. So yeah, like you said, it's complete BS. Yeah. That these policies have been put into place for some godforsaken reason, which makes it really difficult for people to just have some sort of balance in maintaining mm. their mental, emotional, physical health. And also have a job, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's very frustrating. So what's next for you? You mentioned that you've been doing a lot of activism through your phone. Yeah, I am drifting towards building a consultation business around equal representation with a few cohorts. And the idea is that we are this umbrella consultation firm. Sounds so professional. But within that umbrella... Each of the consultations we're trying to pull in have their own specialties and niches. So like I myself have a strong understanding of disability justice and access and providing access, accessible resources to companies. Whereas like the next consultant is more focused on gender equality. The next consultant is more focused on indigenous rights. So it's like we're trying to like make sure we're creating a very intersectional consultation business. The end goal is building more inclusive, universally designed spaces and organizations and leadership to then be inclusive to the outdoor world. So that's that's the next step. That's a big one, of course. And I'm hoping to head to grad school next year. It's going to be a while, fall of 2021, if COVID isn't a freaking mess, to be able to like really develop that part as well. So I really want to focus on my own personal leadership and grow that as much as I can. So I'm vocalizing effectively and being able to delegate and build relationships effectively as well. So those are kind of the two big things. I am unemployed at the moment. I'm really focusing also on my athlete career and trying to develop more projects that do provide more equal representation in media and marketing for the companies that I work for or work with. So that's another branch. That all sounds very exciting. I'm really curious to see how this cohort comes into like manifestation <laughs> they're really cool yeah 100%. i am too a little nervous because it's a new chapter and i've built new things with the help and support of other folks so i always appreciate the support of folks that are really 
committed to are able to offer and and build with me. So yeah, I'm very excited to see where it all goes. Yeah, definitely. We'll be following that. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we have kind of reached towards the end of our conversation here. And we have a lightning round though, before we end. <laughs> and it's a series of four questions, whatever comes to your mind first, start it up. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? That's a great question. What has influenced me the most? It's social and racial justice advocates from the civil rights era. James Baldwin is a big one. Audre Lorde, Malcolm X, MLK, all these folks that were just like kicking pure butt, which is awesome. I really try to focus that energy into the work that I do unapologetically as much as possible, knowing that I am doing it with love and care for my community. Yeah. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your ventures? Taking care of myself first. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've received? To not take things personally. How's that going? It's actually going pretty well. I'm decently good at not taking things personally. It's really difficult to see someone coming from a place of hate and... Even that, to me, I've reframed to be like, you know, there's a lot of passion behind that hatred and that usually passion is correlated with love for something. So they're standing up for something. They're fighting for something based around that hate. So that's kind of the reframing that I've gone through to be able to understand where people might be coming from. And besides taking things personally, a lot of the things I do is based around patience, love, and understanding. I try to be as patient as possible with folks that might not know a lot of this information. I try to understand where they're coming from as much as possible if they're open to sharing that information. And then I come from a place of love and compassion as well in sharing that information if they are open to it. Mm -hmm. That's a good one because if we took everything personally, we would break down, I think. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) it's very harmful, I guess, in itself. To be able to taking things, everything personally, mm-hmm. it's hard. I mean, that's also a privilege to say a lot of people that it's, it's a hard concept to wrap one's head around. So yeah, it takes a while. Yeah. Well, I know that I take a lot of things personally, especially around DI stuff. So I'm trying to. Well, it hit not... impact personally. <laughs> yeah. so it sense, yeah. It's like this is impacting my health. Yeah. So I'm going to take it personally. Yeah. The final question here is what is your superpower? That's a good question. Let's see. What is my superpower? Well, simply, I can use my crutches as chopsticks to pick up gross socks, which is cool. (laughs) But that's not a superpower. (laughs) My friends just told me that that was one of my superpowers. Let's see. Oh, that's what he said. He said that I have this ridiculous brain that can connect one concept to another concept in a matter of few sentences. So like I somehow connect a banana to racism. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where I'm like, oh yeah, you know, that's the concept of intersectionality. Like connecting, it's all interconnected to a certain extent. Yeah. It's all around a bunch of Venn diagrams. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want us to go down a rabbit hole with a banana and racism. but uh... (laughs) Oh, just look into what's happening in Jamaica. Yes. Yes. There you go. That is a superpower. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for making time for me, for this podcast, and for sharing your story. 
There are many more questions that I wanted to ask you, but I want to be cognizant and respectful of your time here. Yeah, definitely. No. And so how can we follow you on your journey to change? The only primary thing I use is Instagram. So at Basu underscore Sojitra. Besides that, I don't really want to use anything else because it's just the I personally think it's a waste of time. So that's my blog. That's how I vocalize a lot of my values. That's how I organize. That's how I communicate with my communities and try to develop different projects as well. So there's a, there's a lot that can happen in Instagram. Oh, yes. I have just started using Instagram like more actively when I started the podcast back in January or earlier this year. And I've really been able to connect with some amazing people. And it's just a whole other world. I had mm -hmm. no idea. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you would like to add before we end our conversation here? No. You're good? <laughs> You're good. I, mean, I can talk about this stuff for hours and hours, and I do so with a lot of my friends. That's great. That's great. Which is why hopefully I'm able to articulate it fairly clearly and effectively. Yeah. I don't have very many people that I can talk to about this stuff, but that's why I started the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're ever wanting to, there's a lot of different affinity spaces that are happening. One that I'm primarily connected with is Climbers of Color. Okay. Yes. If you look into that, they try to do community Zoom events and it's open to any and all, of course, based on Pacific time in the US. So that's dependent on that. But yeah, yeah that's it. That might be a good option to be able to connect with different folks of color around these issues. Okay. Thank you for that suggestion. It's helpful sure mm -hmm. all right well thank you again so much Vasu really appreciate it and I will be in touch hey all thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings if you'd like to hear more episodes with change making environmentalists head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast you can find me online on Instagram and Twitter and as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.